what are you going to do? All right. We don't have time to waste. Thank you so much for joining me. Sorry about the 10 minute delay to get this shit unfucked. Um, it wouldn't recognize anything that I was trying to include as an audio input. So we're back. All right. I've lost half the people who are watching more than half. So that's awesome. But whose fault is that? Nobody's except mine. All right. Let's get this going, shall we? Here we go first. Hey, Luke, I'm attending UFC Austin this weekend, and I want to get your early thoughts on the card itself and what fights you have the, your eye on most. So I'm going to be repping my MK shirt at the event, uh, though I, I bet I won't look as awesome as BC did during yesterday's show. Uh, all right, so let's check out the, this upcoming card. Let's see. This next one... So this is Cater versus Emmett. Let's see what we think about this card. Well, first of all, the main event's obviously tremendous. Um, but beyond that, oh, there was a fight that I had spotlighted. I'll tell you in just a second. So, so your main event's pretty great. Then you have Cerrone Lozon, which, of course, was supposed to be earlier, and they had pushed it forward. You have Kevin Holland versus Tim Means. That's a very important fight for both of their careers. Probably the one that I have the most amount of interest in, although, you know what? Joaquin Buckley versus Albert Duraev. I've heard so many good things about what Duraev does in the training room. And then, last but not least, Demir Ismogulov taking on Guram Kutsaladze. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but those two guys at lightweight are absolute fucking hammers. Um... That, that might be the best fight on the entire card. And then, how about this? The main event of the prelims is a guy I was spotlighting yesterday. Adrian Yanez taking on Tony Kelly. That's a very difficult fight in both directions. Um, then you have Court McGee uh, taking on Jeremiah Wells. Uh, it's I think it's Ricardo Hamos taking on Danny uh, Chavez. Who else is on this? Eddie Wineland, Cody Stamen's a big one. Phil Hawes versus Deron Wynn. And then the whole thing kicks off with Roman Delize taking on Kyle Dawkins. Dude, that... that most of that card is pretty awesome, to be honest with you. Most of that card is pretty excellent. So, um, But the one I would have spotlighted would be Ismogulov taking on Kutaladze and or Yanez and Kelly is a big one as well. Um, both worth paying attention to. Let's see. Luke, you said last live chat you had one of the worst days of your life last week. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Was that hyperbole or legit given the amount of truly terrible days? No, it was pretty legit. As someone similar to you, a dad that can let things can let things others see as less important affect me in a big way. How do you deal with your stress as a dad? I don't know that I have a good answer for you. I don't I don't I don't know that I deal with stress in any particularly good way. I mean, same way that you would deal with everything else, trying to get more sleep, trying to live a more active life, therapy, you know. Um, I don't have I I I would be the last person you would want to ask about like what's an effective way to deal with stress. I have been dealing with it. I don't know that I've been dealing with it particularly effectively. All right, uh, let's see. Luke, during the during the buildup to the last UFC, looking at embedded in other media, I felt like Joanna had done a lot to rewind the clock on her career. During the fight when she got KO'd, I felt horrible, this person writes. Not because I was rooting for her to win, but to see a legend go out like that. When she gave her interview and said she would retire, I had a huge sense of relief. Even though I would miss seeing her fight, I much I was much more happy that she is not taking any more head trauma during the fight with Tony too. I had a similar reaction. Uh, at first, a sense of shock and then a feeling of horror for Tony. 
blah 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 blah. And then the question is, I love the sport, but still can seem to recon- I still can't seem to reconcile that these athletes we have are losing years off of their lives, especially since they are not getting paid enough. How do you at times reconcile with the reality of the sport and still enjoy fights to the fullest? I mean, this is not that hard an argument to make. The argument is not that like listen, I've said it before. There, there is no such thing as safe fighting. Fighting is much like smoking. It's just a really, yeah, some versions of smoking might be better for you than others at the margins or whatever. But in general, the way to combat the ill effects of smoking is to do less of it or none of it, right? There really is no way to make fighting safe if you're still going. I mean, you could make something that looks like fighting that isn't fighting, and you can make that more dangerous. But if you're actually going to have people fist fight, it's not safe. So it's inherently unsafe. So you just kind of have to first... Just work with an acceptance of that, which I do. Secondly, these people are adults. They do have a right to live their life in whatever manner um, that they best see fit, which doesn't mean they can do whatever they want, but we've had this argument before. Should a free society allow people to fight one another for money? Again, under strict conditions, I think that they should. I don't think that the government has a compelling interest in stopping it. And so what that leaves us with is, okay, if those are the considerations upon which we're going to operate, and they appear to be, I don't think you can put the toothpaste back in the tube, um, you have a choice to make. One, you can not watch if that's something that you can't meaningfully support, which I understand. Being an MMA fan or being a combat sports fan is not for everybody. Obviously, the biggest stars can pull in the widest amount of people, but you're still talking about there's going to be a significant portion of the population that's just not going to be interested in people fist fighting for a living or for money, just as a spectator. But if you want to be a spectator, then I think what you have to do is, at least if you're in media's position, because sometimes the fans ask a pretty good question, which is, why should the fans care about fighter pay? And my answer to that is, well, in sort of a strict sense of the conversation, you probably don't. It doesn't really meaningfully, I don't know that's a cause that they need to or can even take up. But what I would say is if you're actually honest about what support you give to fighters and how much they mean to you and how much you're inspired by them, watching them work under uh, what I would consider to be unfair market conditions such that it has a profound effect on their quality of life later in life, then that should matter to you on at least a personal level, if not so much the fan experience. But I think you just have to realize fighting isn't going anywhere. It's entrenched now and protected and governed by law, at least in this country and many others as well, where athletic commissions operate. The key to this is if you can't be a part of it, that's fine. But if you're going to be a part of it, then it's to um, recognize that humans are going to have different conceptions of how they want to live their life in the best way possible. But more to the point of your question, this is why I think if you're media, you have an obligation to say something about fighter pay. It's why you have an obligation to make sure that commissions are doing their job. It's why you have an obligation to see to make sure that promoters are not getting away with scams or hurting fighters. It's why you have an obligation to make sure that um, any sponsors in the space are acting ethically. This is less an issue than it used to be, but they're, one of the things that people brought up was like, oh, well, the Reebok deal is great because now fighters don't have to chase down their own sponsors for money who you know are fly-by-night operations. And to be clear, that actually was a problem. There, there was more than like a handful of cases. It was you know regular enough to be a thing that you weren't surprised to hear, let's put it that way. That, you know, there'd be some kind of sponsor that came out of nowhere. You'd see them all over every fighter's t-shirt. 
and then they wouldn't get paid or, you know, they got paid whatever and they had to threaten them publicly and like, well, we don't have to do that anymore because Reebok will be guaranteeing these checks. But the reality is that wasn't enough to make up the difference in pay for most of these fighters. So that, that was the trade-off there. But that is something that's genuine. I'm just sort of pointing out the real way to go about this is to just accept that this is going to be a condition. And if you want to pay a part of it and you want to watch it, but you have some other concerns, then you should advocate for those concerns. You should advocate for better health and safety regulations. You should advocate for, again, better pay to make the whole trade equitable. You want to put in the safeguards and the ruling parameters that make this all a little bit uh, fairer in the end. But if in the end what you really can't stomach are people you like getting laid out, um, I'm not saying that's exactly this person's question, but if I'm talking to you in that way, then yeah, this is not for you to to watch. It's not it's not going to be for everybody. Um, but how do I reconcile it? I reconcile it by saying in the media's role, and you could call that journalism or something else, I think there is a distinction, but in the media's role, yeah, your role is not to backslap promoters. Your role is not to backslap managers. Your role is to ask whether or not any of these entities are acting in the way that they should be, and if not, what should be done about it. That's that's the job, and that's if you if you really think about that, that's why like MMA journalism is so completely upside down because the real way to make it in MMA journalism is to backslap. Uh, promoters. It is to backslap managers. It's to get in tight with the manager so you can get access to their clients. It's to get in tight with the organization so you can get preferential treatment. And I'm not saying that everyone who goes out there and has a good relationship with the manager or a good relationship with the promoter actively does that. I, in fact, have some good relationships throughout the industry. I have a lot of bad ones, but I've got some good ones too, and I don't actively seek to maintain them for those reasons. So people can get along in other ways, but like, what's the job? Like, there's plenty of bad actors in the management space. There's plenty of bad actors in the promoter space and in the commission space. If you don't see people in media actively going after them all the time, they're probably not doing their job. And I would give, I'm going to tell you up front, most of these people are not doing their job. But that's the upside down because what they actually got hired for was to produce content that generates enough clicks that the parent company can sell ads against or use that traffic as a way to collect further kinds of contracted revenue from a gambling partner or whoever and they don't really want you to rock the boat that's really how that job actually works in reality so when people talk about like oh you know MMA journalism doesn't need reform MMA journalism is completely upside down it's the opposite of how it's supposed to go and that's true to a large extent for a lot of media and sports um but I would say it's much more pronounced in the MMA level where there's you, you, you have to get ahead by developing a cult of personality and you do that by making sure you have powerfully entrenched connections that can buoy your, 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 um, your efforts. Shevchenko's defense got me thinking about an underappreciated metric when t trying to compare the greats, the manner of the victory deep into the title reign. Do you think this is a valid way to try and separate them when you consider at about plus five defenses, there's just a lot more tape on them? Yes, I said that exactly on, uh, at the, uh, on I think, two, or like last Friday, something like that, if we're talking about this fight in particular. John Jones and GSP, for example, went to decision much more often, whereas Silva, and to a lesser degree, DJ, scored more finishes. Again, some of that's going to be like, what kind of fighter were they going up against? Silva obviously has an incredible record, but there were some fights on his, on his um, rise that I don't think were up to par in terms of what, like, um, you know, um, 
GSP had to go through pretty consistently. I don't think that they were equivalent in that way. So partly it can be a strength of schedule just by virtue of what the division offers. That's a big part of it. Um, but yes, I, I do think that this ha- and also the other part is too is like by the time you get to be a UFC champion and your six or five, six, seven defenses in, you're going to be a senior fighter. There's going to be a lot of tape on you. You might not have the same, you know, blood and guts sort of feel for the sport. GSP was visibly and, you know, verbally just exhausted with the sport by the time he took his um, sabbatical or whatever you want to call that before coming back and fighting Michael Bisping, that four-year absence. He just couldn't take it anymore. I think partly it might be that. Also, you know, once you begin to rack all that up, you know, it's it's true at any point in your career. It just becomes, they become increasingly acutely aware that they just can't lose status. And so they, they fight, I think, a little bit more conservatively, in part because the people preparing for them are more difficult, in part there could be various matchups, and in part because they just realize they've accumulated all this. And not that it's a house of cards, but what holds it together is really getting your hand raised. And so when that just becomes the prime directive, some of the other ways in which you might have had a more competitive spirit or more risk-taking assessments, some of that gets dialed back along the way. I tend to think that, yes, there is a lot of tape on John. There was a lot of tape on GSP. There's a lot of tape now on Shevchenko. And I think there's going to continue to be people pushing her. Who knows what will happen in her next flyweight contest. Um, if it's Misha Tate, I don't really know what to make of that just yet. We'll have to see how she does against Lauren Murphy. But, um, yes, the manner in which they get the defenses also kind of matters. Were they getting knockouts? Were they getting submissions? All of that sort of matters in a function of greatness. But I think the, the two major things I would point to as someone gets older and gets a little bit, not easier to beat, but they you can see the contenders slowly creep up on them. They become, actually the three ones, they become burned out. John Jones had that as well. GSP had that. Uh, two would be that there's tape on them. And then three, the sort of creeping sense of status pre- uh, pre- preservation. Let me read one of these things. I if I normally don't go to the emails when I look at questions you guys have for me, but I got a bunch of DMs about this, and I got a great email, so I want to read it to you and then see what you guys think. So this guy writes from Scotland. I won't read his name. Uh, he goes, I found myself disagreeing considerably as you ruminated on judging criteria, specifically grappling scoring in relation to the Shevchenko-Santos fight. This was from comments I made on yesterday's MK. I think I understand your line of thinking. A focus on damage ignores the difficulty and excuse me, a focus on damage, this person writes, ignores the difficulty required to secure dominant position and attempt submissions. While that is a true statement, that is actually not my argument. But I understand why people might think that because I also kind of said something like that at 2 a.m. when I was doing my post-fight show. It's also hard to resolve from an optics perspective. Here's why I think the current criteria are actually a net benefit, this person writes. The criteria incentivize MMA grappling at the expense of jiu-jitsu position over submission styles. Think of Maya. Plenty of fighters adopt a grappling-heavy style and do not seem unfairly penalized by the judges. For instance, Dagestani fighters seem to integrate grappling with ground strikes to great effect. I would agree with that. I think the criteria should encourage such integration. I think in general I agree with that. That's not really what my argument is, but let's keep going. Some of the current problems could be resolved with better education directed at fighters and coaches. I agree. Um, Santos held Shevchenko in a highly advantageous position and spent minutes attempting to secure a choke. Had she varied her offense and landed some strikes from the back, she would uh, likely secure the rounds. The much maligned Aljamain Sterling was conscious enough to do exactly that against Peter Yan. Once failing to execute a choke, he punished the body. That is true and that is not true. And this is where I think really that argument comes apart. Um, 
And then he says awarding grappling positional dominance is similar to awarding defense or footwork. The award is relative safety and the positional advantage. I don't agree with that either. Okay, so here is why I, 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 I this is what I want to make. The argument that I'm making about I think the rules being going a little bit too far is not me saying, well, grappling is hard and that should be rewarded, at least not in the way that you might imagine. I'm not asking them to reward the difficulty of the effort to control someone, although we can all grant it is difficult to do. The argument that I'm making is because it is so difficult, if there's not much of a reward for what those positions confer, and you can say, well, you get to do ground and pound and then potential submission attempts, but dude, like, you know, very few guys can pass to mount or the back as easily as the handful of people you can name. We're not, you're, you're talking about a handful of fighters and a handful of contests. I'm talking about the motherfucking rules for everybody. And if you place such an emphasis on damage in the ground or like really, you know, the very, very close submission attempts, you are asking them to put in an enormous amount of work with very speculative results if you can even get them at all. If you're really watching this and your grappling is good but not great, why would you? Why would you do much grappling at all? I the, the question is not whether or not we should reward difficulty. The question is if the rule rules in MMA everywhere in all sports, but let's just talk about MMA. Rules create incentives. Depending on how the rules are structured, structured, they will incentivize certain forms of behavior or competitive strategies over the other ones. And what my concern is, and of course I don't know this to be a fact, but what my concern is, is that by making the very difficult work of grappling, the overwhelming bulk of it that you see functionally worthless without the very rare difficult parts to get at the end, even the more insanely difficult parts to get at the end, by not rewarding that enough, I wonder what that might do to fights overall. And a lot of people bring up this bullshit that doesn't have anything to do with my point. Well, what about the lay and pray people? Yes, dude, we already have enough in the... Like, even before these rules were instituted, we had enough to stop a lot of that. I'm not in any way defending the idea that Logan Storley really beat the shit out of MVP and that that should be counted. That's not the argument. The argument is... is there's just two of them. The first one I'm going to make is... There is just a clear unknown about what incentive structures we are establishing and how the fighters over time will respond. Right now, we're operating in a bit of a weird situation where many of the best fighters and coaches and everybody else just has no clue um, about the rules being updated. And so if that's going to be the case, then what happens when they begin to catch up? How does that change strategies over time? I don't think there's been a lot of thought given to that. Yes, you can say certain people have certain styles better for that. That's fine. But here's the point I want to make, and he goes back to this one, what he writes. The much maligned Aljamain Sterling was conscious enough to do exactly that against Peter Yan, once failing to execute a choke, he punished the body. Not true. He did it in the second round, not the third. In fact, I have the numbers for it. Ready for this? Here are Aljamain Sterling's numbers in the third round. A round that I, by, by the way, I believe he won it. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm trying to understand how this can square with the challenges to my point. He landed six strikes. Six. Uh, now, he did have three minutes and 43 seconds of control time. He did not ever really get close with a sub attempt. They didn't even grant him one. So he what he really did in that fight was, and by the way, Peter Yan had eight, but Yan had the hardest strike of them all. He had a vicious body kick that he landed. After that, it was pretty much a wash. In fact, I would say Yan probably did the better striking. 
So what what I'm trying to understand is if we're really saying that that dominance, oh excuse me, that that um, that that the damage therein should be the sort of significant component here in terms of judging effective striking. Striking, excuse me. What I'm also trying to sort of impart to you is here we have a case that looks very much like the one with Santos and Shevchenko. Now there was a little bit of difference on the feet, obviously, but in terms of what they did on the ground, and yes, I grant that the larger part weighs into the weighs into the judging evaluation. We have a situation here where not close on a submission, not close, virtually zero ground and pound of any kind of variety of measurable whatsoever. All we have is control time. But that's sort of my point. My point here is I'm not ask, I'm asking you to judge the difficulty only in the sense of what the rule incentive structures then become. But the other part that I'm trying to get across to you is if I two of the most important things you can do in grappling are pins and asymmetrical positions, right? And there's not many asymmetrical positions, there's really only one major one, but it's an important feature from it. And the other one, of course, um, and it can be asymmetrical in different ways, like if you're in mount, you're past their hips, so that, that's another one. But the other one is, is uh, you know, is pinning and things like that. Dude, if I can get to a point where maybe I didn't get all that close with a submission, and maybe I didn't get all that close with uh, a whole lot of ground and pound, and yeah, you might've gotten a little bit better of the, 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 the standing, uh, stuff on me, but I'm sorry. If I put you in a position where you are defensively, res- you have to be dis- defensively responsible in an urgent way, and I have command of your back for over three minutes, I don't know how this is even fucking debatable that that should be counted. But these stats, this figure is not too dissimilar from what some of what Santos did. The idea that like every time someone's had success in grappling, it's because they realized they had to lay down the ground and pound and that opened up all this stuff or, you know, whatever. It's just not true. The point is you are still going to get fights where it might be a wash on the feet and there might not be that much action on the ground. Now what are you supposed to do with it? Oh, we can go down the line and go to aggression and we can go to cage control and stuff like that. But that to me misses the entire point. If wrestling or grappling is a part of MMA... We don't have to wholesale adopt rule sets or values from them, but what matters in those situations and the functional reason why they matter in those sports should impart how we judge the grappling in MMA context. And I'm telling you, if you can get to a position by physically controlling, pinning, whatever, another person to an asymmetrical position or a pin, and you can do it for long periods of time, dude, you are out-wrestling them to the effect that they can't hardly do anything. That, I'm not saying, outweighs a clear round on the feet for for the first two and a half minutes. That's not really what I'm saying. But the way I'm trying to look at it, or the way my understanding of the way I see it being judged now is that they've turned grappling from a points-based system that was probably overrepresented, so the the points-based style of jiu-jitsu oh they they passed a half from half guard to to side they passed a mount whatever that really counts to us i understand not going overboard with that but to me they've swung a little bit too far the other way with just making mma mma grappling basically sub only grappling where you can just give up the worst positions on earth and if you just you know kind of ride it out and play prevent defense and you you scored a big shot on the feet then then you win that to me seems ludicrous that seems ludicrous to me so when I talk about judging difficulty, it's only as a function of what that new rule does to incentives. And the answer is we don't really know yet. We don't really know yet. But I'm very cur- curious and somewhat nervous 
to see what happens to MMA grappling if we judge it in such a way where the overwhelming majority of majority of it is worthless. I don't I don't know that that's a good idea. We'll see. All right. Given your artillery background, do you have any uh, opinions on the equipment and tactics being deployed in Ukraine? Have you ever been tempted to do mercenary work? Why the fuck would I go to Ukraine to fight Russia? What does that got to do with my life at all? No, there isn't. I, I didn't want to go to I Iraq or Afghanistan for George Bush either. Like, none of that shit had anything to do with our life. Well, I mean, you make a somewhat of a case for Afghanistan, I suppose. But, you know, we all saw how that turned out, did we not? Um, and Iraq was just a total crime against humanity. No, I didn't. I've never... There are a lot of people in the armed services who get trained to do war fighting. And folks are always like, why do they want to go and fight and risk death and maiming? It's because what's dude, that's what they were trained to do, not just as an occupation, but as an identity. You know, it's it's their it's their raison d'etre for a lot of these folks. But I never felt about it that way. To me, it was always like, does this war make sense or not? And if it doesn't, I'm not I'm not trying to go die because George Bush is a fucking idiot. I, no. <laughs> no thanks and right now like certainly I feel terrible for the people of Ukraine I really I genuinely mean that I think we all have seen some of the horrors and uh, it's a terrible situation but what does that have to do with my life sorry um, I, you know it's not very very clear that's in exactly my family's interest that I go over there and do something like that so no absolutely not now to answer the other question this is how old I am when I was in uh, I was in Hotel Battery 314 4th Mardiv we used the M19 or 8s they now have upgraded to the M77s or the M777. I'm not sure how they exactly call it, but we had the M19 or 8s. And, you know, these are roughly equivalent weapon systems, but I can't imagine that. I would imagine that the big key insight is that the M77s, um, that they can do much longer range, depending on what kind of barrel they're using uh, in terms of how far they can fire with what kind of accuracy. Air artillery is an area weapon for folks who may not know. And in fact, the Russians were the ones who developed modern artillery tactics. That's why you don't really need a direct hit in artillery. That's not what it's about. It's just about the blast radius. Obviously, if, um, and they would do what's called bracketing, where if the target's here, they kind of overshoot. So then they can calibrate and undershoot and they get kind of closer over time. Shoot, move, communicate. That's what you do in artillery. That's all that it's about. You set a position, fire, talk to one another, talk to the people on the hill, Get you know the, the guys who fought in the first Gulf War in my unit were telling me that the Iraqis had really shitty equipment back then in terms of tracing them, but they could do it over time. And so the whole point was you had to set up a established you know uh, gun line, fire wherever you were going to fire for whatever reason, and you had to wrap up and then move CSMOs, what they call it, collect your shit and move out CSMO. And then as they were leaving the position far enough away, they could begin to see the Iraqi bombs drop on their position once they had been um, triangulated, but never never got caught with it. So. Um, my guess is that they're, the reason for the M77s would be for long-range um, artillery use. Um, but I, I don't know much more than that. Have I ever tried getting into yoga and meditation? I've, I've, I certainly respect them. I have not really given it any kind of serious consideration. Luke, how do you know, or excuse me, do you know, or have you heard of Knees Over Toes guy? Yeah, he follows me on Instagram, or at least he used to. I'm not sure if he still does. Um, yeah, and I bought his book recently. I'm not sure where I put it, because I bought it. Oh, here we go. There you go. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, because I got it on Friday, maybe Saturday. And um, yeah, 
I was trying to get it going, but um, yeah, I've been I've been meaning to do it. I've got patella tendon pain in my left knee. Man, you know what it is? Yeah, I've, I have slowly begun to figure out my health a little bit. Here's something I've sort of picked up on. I destroyed my right ankle two times in my life. One time when I was 14, and I tore six ligaments in my ankle. And then another time in the Marine Corps after my second year um, uh, on a training exercise. And it was, it was they had to medevac me out. It was terrible, terrible. And at the time, they told me I didn't do any Achilles uh, tendon damage. But I think that they missed it because... My right calf now has a separate, like they're similar, but has a separate shape than my left calf. My right one's the one that's been destroyed. Uh, And um, I have heel pain in it anytime I run or walk any kind of long distance, which has really impacted my ability to run because the issue is you can't can't put it into what's called dorsiflexion. You have to kind of put the, the heel elevated. Um, to keep the ankle from pinching. But I think what I have is tendinopathy in that Achilles heel. I think the, the Achilles tendon has been just basically degraded over time by virtue of whatever th- things my body did to compensate to account for all the damage that had been done and probably not ever effectively healed. And um, and now I'm paying for it. So I am, uh, But I didn't really discover this until I changed the shoes over to accommodate all the issues with my feet, which, I, you know, is a whole nother thing. It's weird, man. I, I've explained this to people. Like, if this is the ball of your foot, I actually couldn't push off when I would train off the ball of my foot, which you're like, you might be saying, like, dude, that's how, that's how you do everything. That's how you sprint. That's how you jump. Right, I couldn't do it with my left foot. Now, that's my other foot. My right foot is the one that has the Achilles issue or the right ankle. My left foot is the one that has the really messed up toes. I On my left foot, I actually can't, I can't spring off the ball of my foot because my front left toe is so crooked that... It doesn't, it doesn't, if you look at the the tendon here, it lines up with the finger. Mine is like this. So the tendon comes up here, but the toe is this way. So when it bends, it doesn't bend here like it should. It bends here, and it's extremely painful. So whenever I, whenever I have to push off on my left foot, I have to turn it totally out and sideways to get the ball on the outside of the foot, or i got to take my two big toes, my big toe and my other one together. Otherwise, I can't push off of it at all. Um <laughs> Just got any number of ailments. Just any number of ailments. You just can't believe it. Uh, what in the world happened to Mike Dolce? He was everywhere there for a while. Is it because the UFC now has their own in-house meal prep that athletes no longer need the services? I think he's still out there. I think he has clients. I I don't exactly know. Um I know Lane Norton was going after him recently because uh, Lane has a <laughs> I love Lane. He's got he's got quite the appetite for conflict, um, uh, which I say positively. It was as a joke, but um, other than that, I don't I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to that. I haven't heard from him either. If Glover versus Yuri wasn't a title fight and just a main fight on an Apex card, do you think either of them would have endured the war that they just had to get the W? Yes, yes, for different reasons, but yes. Also, another question, Luke. Considering what happened with Valentina in this fight, is the real winner here, Tatiana Suarez, and her chances of dethroning Valentina going up greatly? They were always pretty interesting, and now the kind of question that we have is, what about her health? When is she going to be back? What is she really going to be able to do? I don't really know the answer to that, man. I don't know if any of us do. That's a tough one. Someone says... um, 
You're one of the few MMA analysts who re- really rely on fighter stats. I don't rely on them. I don't need stats to do fighter analysis, but I like how the stats add color and texture to what I'm trying to argue. But I don't need them. Luke, if introducing someone to death metal, which I would never do, what album do you go for? (laughs) Dude, I don't try to convert anyone to that shit. It's utterly pointless. All the people I know are into like, all my friends are into like the Smiths and you know, the cure and maybe obviously there's a whole side of my friends and family who are into like Latin music or whatever. But like, and my wife does like sort of black do my wife went with me to the cannibal corpse concert and my wife was eight months. No, seven months pregnant, six months. My wife was like six months pregnant when we went to see dying fetus together in New York. (laughs) We saw him together in New York. Now we had a special seats where we were kind of isolated from everyone and no one could bother us, which was great. Um, Cannibal Corpse, this was before my wife was pregnant. That was the last concert I saw before the pandemic at the uh, the TLA in Philly. Um, she went with me because she's kind of into like the black metal, doom metal sort of thing. So she could kind of make it work. She respects Cannibal Corpse and she, you know, she respects Dying Fetus. But like, who am I going to get to watch with me? Nobody. Nobody. Um, let's see. Yeah, uh, as a hardcore MMA fan, I try to watch fights for fun, but I also like to try to judge them with a critical eye. Are there people you trust in the MMA sphere who regularly comment on Twitter or elsewhere about how the round should be scored? Sure, Alexander Lee at MMA Fighting, Sean Sheehan. From, I think, Sherdog and Severe MMA. Uh, who else? Uh, Aaron Bronstetter at a TSN has always got a pretty good scorecard. Um, those are three names right there that will get you pretty far. Sure. Look, as someone who struggles with mental health and helps others to manage theirs, I, 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 I hope, I'd be interested in what you do to help manage yours, especially how you've been so open to anxiety. What practical things, routine, and medication do you use? Dude, it's nothing especially complicated. I have a therapist, right? I was able to sort of lock up one, which is helpful. Um, I try to keep a regular. I try to keep a regular sleep schedule. I try to keep a regular exercise schedule. I try to keep regular family time, and I try to. Um, I try to talk about my life with my family as much as I can in ways to help me understand what's happening with me and how they perceive it and what can be done. You, I mean, there is, there, it's sort of weird. Like part of the journey of any kind of getting from bad to good mentally health-wise, part of it are things that like no one can do for you. You know, like no one can make you get up. No one can make you go and regularly exercise. No one can make you get the sleep that you need. Those you really are, it's up to you to do that properly. And even opening up yourself to talk, that's up to you properly. But when you really think about it, it also has to be a collaborative process. You should have someone you can talk to, professional help or otherwise, family members, friends. There has to be this sounding board around you where you can get reasonably um, accurate takes or just someone else's assessment of things. And again, I would really recommend professional help. That really is where the beginning and the end of the conversation goes because your friends or family might be fucking idiots and give you really bad advice. That actually is a real problem. But... In general, 
the thing I want you to sort of accept is that it's probably a dual process. Partly you have to accept that some of that you are in control of and they're really, really important and necessary conditions. If your health, your physical health is in decline, um, it's going to be hard to get your mind right a lot of times. You don't have to be like, you know, David Goggins, but like making a habit of living a relatively normal life. And then the other collaborative part needs to be, to me, professional help or at a bare minimum, people whose advice and wisdom you respect having this kind of dialogue and interaction and relationship with them. I think that's I think that's pretty critical as well. So like everyone like, oh, just bottle it up and do it yourself. There are things that you are reliant that you must do. That part's true. But like this idea that like you can solve it all by yourself. I don't want to dissuade you in thinking that you don't have empowerment over these problems. But the best practices are going to be the things you can control for sure. And then trying to work it out with someone who can give you really excellent or, or in my judgment, the best kind professional guidance. Luke, based on your love of syncopation, hit him on the half beat. The people are dying to know, do you like ska? I mean, everyone was listening to ska when I was in high school. Citizen Fish. And all that shit, but no. I mean, yeah, I like it just fine. I like it just fine. I don't love it, but it's all right. It's all right. Hey, Luke, I'm a bit confused about the scoring rules. If we gave Aljamain Sterling the victory for simply having back control for the majority of the Jan fight, how does it not translate to Shevchenko versus Santos? Well, again... It's not totally fair to say that. In the second round, he really did a great job of mixing up strikes to elicit responses. One of the things that Aljamain did really well was not just keeping back to mount, mount to back, that which by itself is hard enough to do. He was very, very, very good at that. The other part is throwing in the strikes in that second round to force certain reactions. He was also very good at that. But someone says... In those rounds, Sterling did more or the same damage to Jan too. Right. Uh, well, actually, that's not quite true. I mean, they were pretty similar, but like there was definitely the biggest strike of the fight, or that round, round three, came from Jan. Now, the numbers are not hugely dissimilar, but he was numerically outstruck, and I'm going to say qualitatively outstruck. And it's not true that there was a lot of ground and pound. It's not true that there was any submission threat that was close. But to me... That should not be a deciding factor because if you're able to maintain control and even if the person got somewhat of the better of it on the feet and you can maintain control for 3 minutes and 43 seconds and this person has to constantly fight off your attempts, even if they don't get all that close, you're always on the defensive. Your body's being squeezed from the triangle. Yeah, I think that should absolutely count. I don't have any problem with the way it was scored, but I have a little bit of a problem saying, well, Aljamain Sterling did you know, exactly what he needed to in round three and then saying Tyler Santos should lose 49-46. I get why she lost 49-46 based on the way that it's scored, but there's a little bit of an inconsistency there. You can't, on the one hand, think that this, the same scoring criteria doesn't give, give 49-46 to Shevchenko over Santos and also give the third round to Aljamain Sterling. You got to pick. You got to pick. You can't have both. Luke, I've been enjoying your analysis, blah, 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 blah. Thank you very much. Uh, could you explain how takedowns are judged? 
Also, should there be an adjustment in the scoring of a takedown as impactful? Yes. So the way it would basically work is that um, if I picked you up and then really slammed you down, I have weaponized the takedown. So the takedown itself has um, has a has a damage component to it. It's not just that we changed the phase of fighting. It's that. Um, you know, I've really put something into the takedown where you didn't just, you know, you were standing before and now you're on your back. No, you went to your back with authority and it hurt, could potentially cause damage. Like you can you can do shoulder damage and clavicle damage, all kind, neck damage, all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you did something like that, then that would count um, as a sort of a damage component. But the other one, I can tell you how it used to be judged, which was, and th this is what I agree, the, 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 the updated rules were designed to cover for or fix, I should say, an overcorrection in the grappling and the way we used to judge it, which was that if I took you down, even if I didn't do a whole lot, but then I passed aside, maybe you recaptured guard, I passed aside again, kind of threatened the back, they would treat it like a wrestling match. Like, oh, we're just going to ascribe wrestling match value to this. You know, not not quite literally, not two points for a takedown, but the but sort of what undergirded wrestling um, attacks, successful ones, strictly defined almost the MMA criteria behind it. And then they begin to ask, okay, but what really was the value of the takedown? Like, what did, what did it meaningfully elicit for you? And so that's where this debate about control comes into play and how, what's the right answer for control. Um, but I think what the way they would look at it now is you changed the phase of the fight. You were standing and then you wanted to take it down and then you got it down. Um, Again, if there's no, if you didn't like spike them or you know slam them super hard, that's all they would really say. Okay, you changed the phase of the fight. Now the whole idea is that you wanted them down there. This must be advantageous for you. You should be able to make this work. And again, in for the most part, I don't have a huge problem with that, but I don't think that's really the beginning and end way to decide what value grappling has in MMA. I actually feel like it leaves a portion of it out, as I aforementioned, that should be more fully considered. Coming up on 28 months since that coveted Reyes versus Jones fight, are we sure he's still in the testing pool? Can't you just check if he's been tested on the website? You should be able to check when he's been tested, at least by what quarter, right? <laughs> Fellow DC native, uh, bought my first home off of H Street Corridor. Oh, good for you. It's a nice area. Just got out of a six-year relationship. Your best tips to get over heartbreak slash meet women in the DMV. Uh, yeah, I don't know about meeting women in the DMV, buddy. That is well past my time. Um, email me. This is from a dude named Ezra. Email me. Uh, this is interesting. Luke, NBC and Nielsen recently published the local TV ratings for the Premier League for the 2021-2022 season. Washington, D.C. was the number one market for the Premier League. That makes all the sense in the world. In the U.S., also Baltimore, Richmond, and Norfolk all finished in the top ten. As someone who lives in D.C., does this surprise you at all? No. Do you see a lot of Premier League support, jerseys, flags, and stickers went out in D.C.? Dude, first of all, there are a lot of British people here, number one. Number two, there's a lot of European people here. A ton. I one time, like, you go to a World Cup game, if, like, Germany's playing... And dude, you, like the German embassy will rent out certain bars. 
you'll go to places that'll just be like nothing but expats. I mean, you have to imagine this, the town here is extra, I mean, relative to any place you maybe have ever been is wildly international. There's a whole row on Massachusetts Avenue you can drive up called uh, Embassy Row, and it's like Pakistan, you know, Great Britain, fucking you name it. All I mean, just all the way down, all these places. And beyond that, you can just imagine that a lot of foreign people would want to live here for any number of reasons related to the government and all the work that goes in around it, or whatever the case may be, diplomats, you name it. Like There are huge populations here of all kinds of folks. And what that sort of tells you is, less about Premier League specifically, but I guess it feeds into it, which is DC is usually number one or right near it for um, World Cup ratings too in the United States. Miami obviously has some good stuff there, and so does LA, but you know, DC is usually top three, top five at a, at a bare minimum, often number one. It's because if you have a foreign population here from either South America, shit, South America, Africa, Europe, um, obviously there's going to be some stuff from Asia here as well. These are populations that love soccer or world, in the world case, football. They love it. They go crazy for it. Um, so what I would say is, what you can what you can see, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like one of the biggest populations here are Eritreans and Ethiopians. And you'll, you'll drive past certain parks and you'll see nothing but like, like, dozens of of uh ethiopian dudes you know um playing soccer together like their own soccer league like it's crazy it's crazy how much not how popular soccer is here but like how many different kinds of groups in the city play it you know also like they do a really good job of getting these i would say the united states is pretty good about getting young women involved as well which i think plays along um uh, factor in terms of lifelong fandom and then participation but the real answer is it's just extremely international here and so as a consequence you just have a lot of people from a lot of different places that love soccer um, and of course the Premier League is the probably the overall best domestic league and so I think it feeds into that Is it fair to say that Yiri's scrambling was underrated coming into the Glover fight? He scrambled pretty well against Reyes, and in his fight with Vadim Nemkov, Yuri was taken down repeatedly, but his scrambling ability in his motor basically meant after a 10-minute round, he was not only effectively controlled, but Nemkov was so exhausted that he could no longer physically continue. Yes and no. He is a resilient scrambler, and he is a creative scrambler, but I would, I would not, and that has massive implications. But I, what I would not say is that he is some kind of like, you know, nothing he does is textbook. Let me give you an example. Jack Della Maddalena gets put in the Darce choke. No, sorry, gets his back taken and has to get his, um, has to get his, obviously get out of that position and then stand. What did he do? Right before uh, Amiv could fully take his back, he was able to create one, one, what the best things you can do is they need to have control of your back. So to the extent that you can, even if they have their legs controlling here, if you can create asymmetry between your, your back and theirs, right? Getting your back to the mat, you might get mounted, but it would at least remove having your back taken. Depending on our perspective, that could be better or worse. He was very good about getting his... Um, right shoulder to the mat, and then when he was scrambling up, he fired the underhook to stand. I mean, that to me would be actually a little bit better about scrambling, in part because it worked a lot quicker, and two, it's a little bit more textbook. Now, what you're again, what you're pointing out is that, for example, like the last sequence, how did he reverse Glover? Well, he reversed him using the fence. I mean, that's not like... That's not, that doesn't show me real wrestling scramble ability. That shows me presence of mind and will creative, effective to, I mean, I'm not bashing it at all, but that's not evidence of like good wrestling, 
Good wrestling, good scrambling is different than that. Especially mat wrestling, mat scrambling, where you don't have any fence to use. How good is your scrambling then? Different story altogether. So, no doubt about it, he is very, very clever. He is strong. He obviously does some things technically quite well. But, you know, when I think about, like, good scramblers... Um, his resiliency is impressive, but I, and and he has I would say I would say this he has good scrambling, surprisingly good against the fence, but overall I would not rate his scrambling by itself, um, as especially uh, elite. Look, after all the craziness of the weekend, do you uh, main event. Do you have any thoughts on how Yuri might match up against the other top contenders in the division, assuming his chin hasn't gone? I think um, Ankalaev is an interesting fight because he can be so bread and butter, right? He can do things very cleverly. He can do things in a very safe, kind of very calculated way. You know, I wonder what that means. For someone like Prohachka, because Glover was a little bit more wide open. Ankalaev is not. Smith, I think, would be more accommodating um, to that wide open style that that Yuri has. But, dude, he gets hit a lot, too. Like, he gets hit a shitload. I really, really, I really am curious about this. You know, the first thing he said was like, dude, I don't need to be getting hit this much. He didn't say it quite like that, but he said he had a shit performance. I really wonder if after this is all over, the biggest takeaway from this is that he realized he just can't fight this way anymore. And you don't want to change overnight, obviously, but you would really like to dial it back and make sharp adjustments. And I think that is going to bring his game to life in new and exciting ways, to be honest with you. Not as exciting as these crazy brawls, but in terms of exciting in terms of its potential and what it can do for him in actually getting wins. I, I really hope that he takes it to heart. I don't want him to be something he's not. Nobody does. But the way he's fighting now, it's just there's a very limited window how long you're going to be able to win at a high level doing that. It's way, way, way too much damage. Way too much. You're like, oh, well, Glover took more. Glover's 42. You know, he's not 29. Glover's got 13 years of fighting on that guy. You know? I made a disparaging comment about the natural beauty of the Pacific Northwest. I, I, lo- I don't have anything negative to say about the Pacific Northwest. Well, there's a lot of people who seem to like, Luke, you, you said the other day that you thought tacos were disgusting. I'm like, I didn't even mention the word tacos. Like, why would you? <laughs> Pacific Northwest is great. Oh, maybe it was something about some of the cities out there, but not like the beauty. Oh, well, I, I don't know if it was like, I don't like suburban living, but that's got nothing to do with the Pacific Northwest, that would be anywhere. How would BC do if he had his own live chat poorly? <laughs> He'd probably do fine. Um, let's see. Someone says, honestly, BC is dropping 22 on Luke in a 3x3. Three three. So this picture that the thread of questions came from, we actually had a, uh, a contest, which I won. So you can lick the backside of my balls and tell me what they taste like. How about that? Uh, Chael recently suggested in a video that if Dana was still serious about getting involved in boxing, he should get involved with the amateurs. Said so this would allow a workaround the Ali Act and said people would be just as interested as long as the UFC and Zufa banner was over it 
perhaps turning it into the Ultimate Fighter Contender Series type show. Well, I don't, I've not heard Chael's video, so I don't want to speak about what that, the very specific nature of his argument is, but based on what you have presented here, I wouldn't agree at all. Um, first of all, boxing already has, relative to MMA, a significantly greater, uh, more developed amateur system. Hardly perfect, but much more developed. Uh, and yes, you don't have to pay them, and they wouldn't be under the Ali Act, but you're literally at that point promoting amateurs. You're already under the gun for not paying MMA fighters to then go and, by law, take on unpaid boxers. I don't know how that would look from a, like, oh, we, we, don't, we don't want to work with the pros in boxing because we have to pay them more and they have federal protections. How would that look? More to the point, how sellable is amateur boxing? Dude, like, we on MK, we push, like, high-level boxing on MMA fans and they barely care. You know what I mean? Like, you mean to tell me that MMA fans would really want to see, like, very low-level fighters? I don't think there'd be any interest. I, don't, I, I mean, I could be... Listen, I, I again, I've not heard Chael's video, so I can't speak to the very specific nature of what he may or may not have said or how he could have exactly caveated it or whatever, but... Uh, no, I don't... From a, from a, the way you have introduced it to me seems utterly unworkable. Uh, Luke, is it fair to say that the Oceanic region is slowly starting to develop its own recognizable style of fighting? Much in the same way that people associate Russian caucus style with sambo and wrestling, the Brazilian style with BJJ, and the American style with sort of wrestle boxing. Australia and New Zealand have a rich history in kickboxing because of their close affinity with Thailand. But in MMA, they are seemingly becoming renowned for a slick and faint-heavy style of striking, utilizing sharp footwork, head movement, and well-timed blitzes. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I said this yesterday on... Um, on extra credit, like, dude, if you're a fan of Australian MMA, what a great time to be around. It's it, it I, I feel like it's come so far, and I really feel like it's barely getting started, to be honest with you. I, I have such hope and, frankly, like, joy at the prospect of what Australian MMA might become. Whether or not there is a distinct style remains, I think, um, I might be a little bit too early to say, and or I might disagree. There's probably a lot of Australian fighters that don't fit that bill. So when we talk about Australian styles at the highest level, A, you have to have a big enough sample size, and B, it has to work out um, It has to work out across a, like a wide range of them. Right now you've got Izzy and Rob, and um, obviously you have Brad Riddell up there. Brad Riddell, by the way, always he he talked about his fight with John Wayne Parr, where it was the first time he'd ever really used feints. So, like this idea that it's natively Australian or Kiwi, I think there are there are a lot of good coaches there doing it now. Eugene Behrman, Joe Perez, there's some other ones on top of it, but I don't know that it's like uniquely Australian. I I um, or Australian more so than the rest. Um, certainly, it is true that the better oceanic strikers do incorporate that to a pretty heavy degree. But I think what's actually going to end up happening is when folk, like there's been this real reluctance to be like, oh, Volkanovsky's good. Not just from the fans, but from like a lot, I think a lot of his contemporaries. And I don't think it has really dawned on them that what he does is pretty special. And once it begins to dawn on them and then they can really unwrap what he's doing and then make it part of what they do in their own particular way, everyone takes it and then remixes it. But like we, I've said this before, everyone calls the NFL a copycat league because they'll have a style of offense for a year, things that work, and then all the offenses catch up and then something new has to take over when all the other offenses have figured out how to do that. I tend to think fainting is going to look a little bit like that. 
I think it's going to, like the very best ones, um, independent of geographic location, will do that. So it's hard to say if it's a set of coaches at a moment in time that are doing this um, or what you would exactly mean by Australian MMA. Like you say, oh, it comes from Thailand kickboxing, but like the ones doing it seem to have just very independent minds about what works in MMA. And uh, while they might do it a little bit more at the moment, quite successfully, I have to think about it a little bit more, but I don't know that I would call that an Australian style. Yeah, keep ringing my fucking alarm. How do you say? How do you see Yuri versus Ankalaev? Yeah, going back to that before, I think Ankalaev is a bad matchup for him, dude. I really believe that. When are you guys going to drop a morning combat rash guard for those of us that are fans of the show and train MMA? We've been talking about it. We just haven't done it yet, but we've been talking about it. Um, probably soon, actually. Probably soon. Luke, in the UFC, would if the UFC would agree to allow Francis to fight Fury, but he first had to, has to defend his belt versus Stipe, Jones winner, would you agree that is essentially the best of a worst case scenario? Speaking from the UFC's perspective, yeah, but why would Francis take that deal? The whole thing that he has is not just the star power that he's accumulated, it's the status. That's what drives everything in the negotiations. Why would he risk that to go get a huge payday when he doesn't have to? Unless the UFC could offer him another payday that would somehow make it more worth his while to do that. But provided that he has to do that first by signing, if he signs that deal, then he has to do that first before he can take a Fury fight, that that would ruin everything or potentially ruin everything. Why would he take that? He has no incentive to take that. Um, especially if he can make a hundred million fight in Fury, which I know is quite speculative, but seemingly not out of the realm of possibility. My question pertains to Glover and his desire to continue fighting. Given all that has happened, where he where can he go from here? His fight with Yuri showed why he deserved to hold the belt and gives reason for a rematch, but he also took a lot of damage. Does he need more time to recover before his next fight, or will time away hurt him just as much? I mean, I think at this point, he needs to maximize all the time that he has, which isn't to say that he should rush any timeline to return, but he's probably got, what, a handful of fights left? Something like that? Five or less, probably much less? Um... I just think at this point, it's just about what have you really got left and who does who do you want it to be against? And um, yes, because certainly I would agree he's taken enough damage at this point. Not he's taken like a huge, huge amount, but he's probably taken quite a, quite a bit, not just in fights, but in the training room to, you know, make us wonder like, why would you want to keep doing this? I think he still could. I think he has to take a little bit of time to come back, but... I don't think I don't think of his next chapter as like what else is out there for him to do at this point. It's at this stage. I think at you know forty two, nearly forty three in October. I think that's right. Um, it's merely about managing the lat the very, very, very last chapter, the last final push, and then call it a day. It's not really about new heights or some kind of bucket list thing. Let's see. Uh, so, okay, here we go. 
Luke, have you ever seen the UFC try to fast track somebody in the same way they seem to be doing out with Alex Pereira? Yeah. Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar fought fucking Frank Mir in his first fight. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. I think he what? He won his title in his fourth? Something like that? I sure have seen it. Yep. No doubt about it. Uh, in my limited observation as a new MMA fan, fast tracking like this is un- is usually reserved for people who either come in with some celebrity, there you go, or the extremely charismatic and great on the mic. Pereira has jumped up, has jumped from two unranked guys all the way to Strickland at four on the, you know, obviously when he had done against Izzy. He doesn't seem that marketable. It's hard to imagine him beating Izzy in MMA and even harder to imagine him sustaining a title run with his lack of experience and advanced age. Right, but here's the thing. A lot of times hype for a guy starts at the hardcore level and it doesn't always happen in fact it doesn't happen very often but usually it's that hardcore level that then bubbles up to the casual level by virtue of the native enthusiasm you see among the hardcore fans there is a lot of hardcore fan interest around seeing Pereira fight Izzy there is there is I mean Joe Rogan and I talked about it when I was on there two years ago that'd be two years ago in October right I mean even then we were talking about it and and people are there is a real you know, insiders really actually kind of do want to see that. Not, not, of course, not everyone. You may be an exception to that rule, but there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people like that. So I think what they're hoping is he can get a big win on this International Fight Week card. They can do a lot of the marketing here, set it all up, where if he wins and Izzy wins, boom, they can do it. And they've got this, you know, he's, he's 34, almost 35 years old. They got to they gotta act now. Um, I think that's really what's driving, driving that. But yes, I've seen people fast-tracked a lot. It's not unusual. All right, it's 416. Let's see what you guys have with the paid questions. Again, you are certainly under no obligation to do that, but if you're kind enough to, I will honor that with what I hope could be a good faith answer for your generosity. All right, let's see. Let's see. Told you Balel, this person writes, versus Hamza was next. I got Balel. You? <laughs> okay, congrats on the prediction, I guess. Um, I guess I'm going to say Hamza, but I think Balal is very underrated. The term effective grappling seems subjective, in my opinion, this person writes. It's takedown, pass guard, mount, etc. How can you measure ground damage as per the new criteria? You can measure as part of overall damage. I don't think you don't have to segment it out. Um, but you have to make an assessment about how much damage there is. But yes, I do think that there is something to be said for control. Oh, control's only value is if you can do damage. Control's only value is if you can use it for submissions. No, control by itself has value. And I think that's the key piece here that to me is missing. Why are high-level grapplers making the mistake of trying to pull to the guillotine, pull pull guard through jumping guillotine, in the worst situations? I've even noticed this happening in the BJJ circuit, ADCC trials to be specific. Probably because these guys do it in the gym and they have just a phenomenal capacity to catch people with it. And then there just appears to be a real clear difference between training partners that you're familiar with and then finding some of these things and then essentially a stranger. I mean, he obviously Glover and Yuri are not strangers in that sense, but in terms of fighting, they're strangers, right? They've never fought each other before. They've never felt what it's like. 
And so you might feel like, oh, I can lock up against this guy I roll with all the time or all these guys I roll with all the time. But you might not be fully aware of how much their particular anatomy, you're just frankly, I hate to put it in these terms, but you're used to the way that grappling with them feels in certain positions, how far you have to drive your arm through to get it. You know, what exactly, which which choke, 10 finger or which cupping or, you know, which part of the blade of the hand or the wrist you want to use for a guillotine. Like all those little things, you know, and, and, and people in the training room might not resist with the same fervor. You know, I also think that just, I think Glover was spent in that fifth round. I really, I really believe that. Jumping guillotine the way he did, you know, partly was this focus, I think, that I talked about before where he may have been over-focused on grappling in that fifth round anyway. Um, but I think the other part of it was he was he was cooked. I just He gave everything he had, and, and then that was it. Luke, am I the only one who thinks it's lame how much Strickland promotes hate and violence but displays very little of that aggression in the cage? It's funny enough. I actually, I actually don't hate his fighting style at all. I mean, here's to me, it's like the issue with him saying those things is not that it's a betrayal of his fight style. It's that he says those things, right? <laughs> That's the issue. And maybe he's just trolling. I mean, who knows? People I know who I really like, who are very normal, seem to also like him, who they know him. So who knows what the hell he's doing? I don't. I don't. But like the issue is not, oh man, he talks all this shit and then doesn't fight that way. Okay, I know what you mean by that. I know what you mean. But really it's like you can stop halfway through you know it's like it's like dude there's a real lack of humanity in every, in virtually everything you say um that that might be the bigger issue uh someone's asking i, I apologize i have not seen it yet uh someone on the road to ufc um, an indonesian fellow whose name i cannot pronounce i have not seen the road to ufc's yet i'm dying to watch it obviously they're on fight pass but i just haven't had a chance yet Someone gives a donation to the pre-roll fund. Thank you. Skillshare donation. That's hilarious. How to fix your shit. Thank you. Uh, what is my beef with Joanna? I mean, I don't really know if this is the best forum for this because, you know, um, she just retired. But basically the idea is this. I'll, I'll just tell you what happened. I was hosting the MMA Hour that one year where I did it. And, um, and we had booked her on the show like like a week or two in advance, like well well in advance. And, you know, understand, we don't just book someone and then go quiet. Like in the days leading up, the producer checks in. We're still all good. You check in that morning. Everything's all good. And, you know, remember, I, I had I still had to do my radio show at 3 uptown. So I had to I had to do that show from noon to 2. And then I had to be done at 2. Like there, I couldn't, you know, I could maybe hang on 10 more minutes. But I had to run out of there, get on the subway, go uptown. And, you know, it's another show is starting at three. Like they can't just delay that for you. You have to be there. So I had no, virtually no time to play with. And, um, I don't know what happened on her end. I don't know what happened on the other end, but the way it was explained to me was she actually had called in. And so, you know, I'm talking to, I think it was Danny and he's like, okay, we got you on, on the line. And then in my chat, he said something to the effect of like, what did he say? Something to the effect of like, hold on, she's gone now. And I'm like, where has she gone to? Um, and uh, she, I think minutes later, they she was on the show at the time that um, Ariel was doing on ESPN. No, I don't. I'm not here to dredge up any beef with Ariel. We talked about it. We're good. This is not an, an attack on him at, at all. Again, we we talked about this particular incident for a while. He and I, so we're okay. 
But if you're asking from my perspective what had happened, um, even though she was already on the line with us, she just stopped the call to go do that. And um, I was it was never really explained to me why. Uh, and I certainly didn't hear anything from her or her management about like, sorry to hang you out to dry like that in front of everybody. So, you know, um, I don't expect fighters to deal with media when the media is unprofessional with them. I really don't. And I don't know why the reverse should not be true. So, um, you know, just got hung out to dry, basically hung out to dry. Could, I mean, it just made me look horrible, horrible. It made me look really bad. And I understand why folks would get that impression, you know, like, um, uh, how would you look at it if someone was like, oh, we got them and then they don't show up and then they're on another one right away that, you know what I mean? Like in the same world, uh, at virtually the same time, you'd, you'd probably be like, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I would imagine you would probably think poorly of them. And I think a lot of people did, uh. And that was really fucking bad for me. That was really fucking bad for my career. And I never heard a word from her or from anyone from her side that um, they seemed to realize that that had done pretty significant damage to me and my relationship with Vox at that point and everything else. So, yeah, I don't take that very kindly. But, you know, I recognize that, and I hope my analysis was on Fight Night fair to this. And yesterday as well, I think my analysis was pretty fair in the sense of, like, you know, and I also I recognize that a lot of other people have had personal relationships with her that they they say nothing but praiseworthy things about. My interaction was terrible, truly terrible. But um, she is owed enormous praise and enormous respect as a competitor, and I will not deny her that at all. And I don't think I have. I think I've been very very fair, um, not just these last few days, but in general, despite you know the fact that um, I got I got hung out to dry. Uh, listen, man, the ones that stayed are the ones that enjoy what you do. Thank you. Even besides trivial tech issues, I appreciate the work. They're not trivial, but they are difficult, uh, to provide good quality content. Keep it up. Thank you. This person with a huge donation. Thank you very much, David. Uh, if you have to allow one set of strikes again in the UFC MMA, what would it be? Headbutt, soccer kicks? No. Knees to the head of a downed opponent. I have a big piece I'm working on on that, so stay tuned. Stavros has a special on YouTube now. You watched it? I did. You all seen this guy? What's his name? Stavros Halkias, I think is his name. He's from Baltimore, which I didn't realize. That's why he was so good with his DC roasting, because he knows DC, because he's being from Baltimore. That dude is fucking hilarious. Free on YouTube. Go watch it. It's great. Um, I've developed a turmeric, 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 based recovery tonic that both Nick and Nate have tried and liked. Would you like to try a sample? I'll try anything, but I will not give phony reviews. So if I don't think it's good, also I have to tell you flat out, I'm a little bit skeptical, but certainly I'm open to trying it. Yes. Uh, Luke, don't let the tech issues mess you up. I mean, they've already, they've already destroyed everything inside of me that um, could ever be there. Over the years, this live chat taught me a lot and helped me to rethink and reframe the struggles I was facing and turn my life around. Phoned your XM show from Brazil years ago. Oh, I know who you are. Augustinho. Thanks, dude. I appreciate that. I wish you nothing but the best of luck, and I appreciate your support. Luke, longtime fan and uh, Madridista. Thank you. I'm planning a Las Vegas trip with my girlfriend 
for International Fight Week. Any recs for fun things to do in Vegas for Fight Week? If you're talking, again, I go through this all the time. If you're talking about like uh, stuff that UFC puts on, there's like the Fan Expo, the Fan Convention, whatever they're doing with that, weigh-ins, any kind of media opportunities, there's going to be a million of them. Most of, not all of these are totally free. You should go to them. You should go to the weigh-ins on, on, on um, Friday as well. Obviously, MK is going to have something for you, so stick around for that. we got a big announcement coming for that. Um, so, yes, those. But in terms of like Vegas itself, I, I cannot overstate this. I do not go to Vegas to party at all. At all. I could not give a shit less about casinos and the titty bars and everything else. Been there, done that. I'm trying to do a good job. I get much more joy out of doing a good job than I get out of like... You know, a late night bender. Plus, they're hard on me at this point, given my age. Uh, if Joanna had won the decision versus Wiley in the first fight, do you think she would still have taken two years off? Great question. Probably not. Probably not. Not at, not not as much. Hard. You have to ask her. Hard not as much. But I, I do think it's a good question. Furthermore, do you think the UFC would have pressured her into a relatively quick turnaround? That one's a little harder to say. I mean, listen, the amount of damage she took was probably alarming to them too, right? I think all of us were somewhat alarmed when we saw those pictures afterward, and she just looked like an eggplant. And again, I'm not doing a bit. I'm not insulting her. I scored that first fight for her, and I was genuinely worried about the amount of like damage she had done and like how swollen she was, and then after all the bruising had gone down. Like it was... Dude, it was it was rough, man. I was like, I I just don't know if people are come out the same that way, you know. It, that's, and I had the same concerns about Drunk Wiley too. Now she kind of slowly figured it out, but Jesus, dude, that was bad. That was really bad. So had she won, that probably would have put more urgency on a return. Um, obviously, wasn't that for the title as well? So yeah, I think it would have. But you know, I'm not one of these types that everything happens for a reason. Well, I don't believe that at all, but. I do think that it was advantageous to her long-term quality of life and health that um, that uh, she took the time necessary to recover. Someone says, Ioana's golden era was only copper, this person writes. That's bullshit. Claudia Gadelia twice, Carolina, Jessica Penny, Tisha Torres, Michelle Waterson, only Jessica Andrade. I mean, do you hear yourself talking, bro? Claudia Gadelia, when she got beat by Joanna, was amazing. Carolina Kovalkiewicz was still quite good. Jessica Penny, dude, Jessica Penny was a fucking hammer in Invicta. You know, if you saw Joanna do that to her, it's because, like, dude, that was to me shocking, uh, honestly, a little bit that Joanna could do that to her. Now, I knew that Jessica Penny was a little bit oversized. I think she has fought as small as Adam Weight at times. So she's been, in various cases, not like the most physically imposing person in a particular weight class. But that is a very good win. Tisha Torres, that's a very good win. Michelle Waterson, the fight wasn't especially all that close. It was good, but not that close. And then she beat Jessica Andrade with a stick and move. Dude, that is a fucking great resume. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're expecting. That's, that's a super solid. Um, someone says I can help you with your PC if you need it. Well, I, a bunch of people reached out. Here's what the issue appears to be. Here. So I bought this new fan for it, and everything fits. It's actually the right one for the motherboard, but it has what's called a 15 pin. 
um, SATA or SATA power. It's got the, it's got this to go into the motherboard, which my motherboard does not have. It's only got a three or a four pin. So I either have to get a converter for the pin or I have to get a different one of these that has a built-in four pin that can go into the motherboard. Because even though this fits the motherboard by being in, what is it, uh, LGA2066, the 15-pin power, whatever the fuck for that is, uh, doesn't fit. That appears to be my long, long issue. Um, let's see. All right. Who do I listen to for financial advice? Um, my dad. Um, financial advisors. I certainly don't listen to crypto bros. I can tell you that. Boy, those motherfuckers are taking a bath, huh? And the truth is, people are like, oh, you hate crypto? Listen, I, I, I suspect some some version of it probably does have a very long-term life. I don't know. I will say this. A lot of very smart people I know just think it's outright a Ponzi scheme. And I don't mean like in my personal life, like people whose judgment I very much respect, quite erudite about economic issues, both historic and present. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far. I don't know if the evidence really speaks to that. But I do think it's an unregulated fucking mess full of scammers and frauds. And I think a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money on an emergent technology that they have oversold in terms of its um, technical potential and in terms of uh, its promise to reward its various holders with a you know a long-term, well, there might be a long-term monetary return, but not with the scams that they're doing. Taking the back and landing, no strikes and threatening no subs seems very similar to controlling the center of the octagon on the feet and backing up your opponent without landing strikes. Yeah, except you physically have to do it. You can't just stand there physically doing that. And again, if they were literally just holding their arms like a bear hug and then they had a body triangle and they were doing nothing else, that'd be one thing. But, you know, kind of fishing for it, making a, you know, you're working. Right, that's what I'm sort of. That's more what I'm looking for. Are you working in some kind of intelligent, reasonable capacity to make use of this position? Um, the reason why that's not the same as sort of standing and, and controlling the octagon is a) they're not nearly as physically exhausting, and uh, b) they don't confer the same benefits either. Dude, if wrestling is going to be a part of MMA, if grappling is going to be a part of MMA. Some of the sensibilities about what matters in wrestling and in grappling needs to matter in MMA. We're just deciding that none of that shit matters at all. And I'm like, I, I don't know. There's a unique benefit to physically putting your hands on another person and controlling them in an MMA context to, at a bare, to make them do what you want, yes, but at a bare minimum to neutralize them and to neutralize them on relatively advantageous position, uh, um, contexts. Now, that by itself, I'm not asking to automatically over-reward that, but I'm trying to say I do think that there is part of the rules that just dismisses the value of control, and I do think control has a value. Disregarding your obviously flawed take on uh, yogurt drinks, what is your favorite Middle Eastern food? I would tell you that like I grew up with a lot of different stuff. Um, you know what? My mom would be upset for me to say this, but some of the best Persian, or I should say best Middle Eastern food I've had has been Persian food. Barg, uh, Kubide. Um, they, make a, they make a special kind of like, um, they put a lot of oil in their pan, the Persians, when they make rice. And so they the rice at the bottom of the pot, I think they call it, what do they call it? 
I forget what they call it, but they they burn it intentionally. It almost they and then they, when they serve it, they serve it upside down, like it's like a, almost like a rice cake, not a cake and like dried out, like the ones you can buy at the store, but like a pile of rice that's where the outside oil has been formed like a coating, almost like it holds it all together, and then you bite into it, and it's just, I mean, heaven. But yeah, Persian food, and then when they you can if you if you really want to go to a Persian restaurant and stunt on them a little bit, uh, whenever they serve you, ask them if they have sumac. It's like this red, almost like limey salt a little bit. That's not quite what it is, but that's sort of the purpose that it serves on the food. Ask them to give you some limey salt. See what that does. All right. Thoughts on flags being banned at UFC walkouts. Yeah, I mean, you guys tell me. I thought this was the company that didn't have anything to do with freedom of speech. But I guess if you got a Hong Kong flag, you know, that's a problem. Right? Are you even allowed to have a Hong Kong kit anymore? I guess not. Uh, could you have a Taiwanese flag? You know, um, these are clearly protected forms of speech. The Supreme Court has told us that they are. I realize that's not the same kind of consideration for a private employer. But, you know, when they talk about, like, oh, how much we protect speech, I mean, yes, on some ways, and yes, in some ways, no. Aljo being the bantamweight champ is possibly the first case in MMA history of a guy being champ, even though there are arguably five to six guys better. Do you agree? No. Uh, no, I don't. He beat Corey Sandhagen, and he beat Jan. Like, who are the five to six guys who are better? TJ Dillashaw? Maybe he's better, but it's not, like, proven or obvious. Uh, after the KO of Gary Toner and everyone else in his pro career wins, do you think a cross-promotion fight between Tan Lee... And Volkov would be an interesting one, yes, but I think Tan Lee has, from one, has a long way to go. He's a very, very good fighter, but I don't think anyone is on Volkanovski's level except for maybe Max. And that is it. He would do bad things. Pitbull could maybe make it interesting too, but that's about it. I, I just don't think that that is uh, uh, a very f good fight for a lot of guys. Have you spoken to John and Josh from weighing in about you reporting on that story? I didn't really report on the story. We talked about it on the show. That quote of them about Nick versus Usman, they were really upset about last week. They spent like 10 minutes on it. I, I heard a little bit of it. Um, I have certainly said things where I didn't articulate myself as clearly as I wanted to. And then, you know, people were taking issue with it. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had said it a little bit differently. In which case, it's fine. But from what I can understand, and perhaps I'm still missing the point, but from what I can understand, there's still a sort of a basic sense about Nick's competitiveness on the feet with Uspin that I just feel is, just in my judgment, not correct. I know everyone in MMA wants to make beefs larger than they are. I don't really have any beef with them at all. I think Josh is a phenomenal commentator. Big John is one of the most important people in the history of the sport. It's not personal. Um, certainly not from my end. It's not personal at all, but I just... It was a take I really, really disagreed with and wanted to talk about it. I, I would imagine over time people are going to have takes that I have that they don't agree with and they're going to try and take me to task for it. There should be a space to do that without conflict or, um, you know, um, everything is some kind of angry contest. Again, I'm not ascribing those things to them. I'm still be telling you from my position, we had a disagreement. And for me, that's really all that it is about it. Not even about them as people, certainly not, or as professionals, just about a viewpoint that they had. I think... In combat sports, every kind of disagreement about viewpoints ends up being, or sometimes, I should say not every time, a lot of times they end up being something more than what they need to be. For me, it's just that. I don't have anything else to say about it other than it was a take I really disagreed with.
catching up on road to UFC, and I'm shocked as how far Chinese MMA has come. What could factor into this? State-funded training, participation, who, which kind of athletes are they recruiting? Remember, there's a shitload of them to recruit. What kind of training they're giving them? What kind of matchups they're giving them? A lot could go into that, but you would have to imagine the Chinese compete really well on a global scale athletically, not just by virtue of the population size, but, but a lot of the state programs. Like, dude, to become a Chinese weightlifter, you know, <laughs> like the guys who don't make it to that are still going to be better than most of the Americans by a, by a mile, actually, by a wide margin. I mean, just think about that. You wouldn't even get make to the, the Olympic team and you still might be better than the person who might be the very best in, in, from the Americas in that weight class. Like, well, actually, the Colombians are pretty good at it, and so are some of the other. The Venezuelans are pretty good at it, too. Some Brazilians are actually pretty good at it, but from from the United States, anyway. Um, you know, you'd be better than a lot of them. Uh, so I, I saw that there was one woman that they had who had, had been to one of the Chinese Olympic weightlifting. They have schools for them. Like, they go, they just live a, like a life around those things. So I think they have this culture that is built around athletic development. They have, a, like, a wide population to access um and i think part of this will just sort of come over time but yeah dude china ha- could could be a powerhouse absolutely it might take some time hard to say when or if that might happen but seems reasonable my company wants to send you free merch email me email me uh then says i tagged you on twitter okay i will take a look at it when this is over i think that is it for today i salvaged it folks i salvaged it yeah that's it for today. I salvaged it. It almost was a disaster, but I fixed it, huh? All right. Thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. I am sorry about the technical difficulties. I sincerely apologize, but I appreciate your patronage just the same. Email me if you have any questions, News at gmail.com, and I will have this up uh, by tonight on podcasts and everything else, okay? Appreciate you. Love you. Talk to you all next time. Until then, stay frosty. <laughs>